Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the CEO Story Podcast. We've got a really interesting story today. We've got Lane Kawaoka, who's a multifamily real estate investor, and he's got such an inspirational story of going from an engineer to now taking control of his own destiny and becoming a real estate investor. So Lane, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me. Aloha, everybody. Yeah, so Lane is based out in the beautiful Hawaii. Which island are you on, Lane? Oahu, where Honolulu is. Waikiki, sunshine and rainbows. Amazing, amazing. Uh, We've got to know each other a little bit over the last few weeks, but I'd love to kind of just get a quick snapshot of your backstory, just to share it with people to give them some context about you. Yeah, so currently I own 4,200, no, 4,500 rentals today, but I started investing back in 2009 with a single family home. Um, No different than anybody else. My parents never owned rental properties. I was kind of brought up with that linear mindset of go to school, get a good job. I happened to be good at math and science. I became an engineer um, and bought a house to live in, which I don't necessarily agree with. And that was the first one. I bought a house to live in and I just started renting it out. And to young 20 something year old kid, that was a lot of beer money back then and that's where this kind of this that was the spark that started me on this path yeah that's like a great story let's dig into it a little bit more so at this time you were working a full-time job you just bought your first property like you said what then made you kind of switch your mindset to become an owner rather than just living in the property that you were that you were that you bought yeah I mean the way we grew up we're very frugal um, I was really good at saving money. I didn't quite eat ramen noodles. So I was more paleo back then. But you know, <laughs> back in 2009, I I was just you know starting out my career. Actually, I graduated in 2007. Saved me a couple years to save up the 70, 80 grand to buy that rent that property in Seattle. And then because I was never home, uh, I was always working on the road as young most young professionals are. I thought it was kind of stupid that I had this big house in Seattle that I was only home on Saturday to enjoy. And I was still working on the road. So I actually um, just called up an old you know, landlord that during college I, we had that rented to us and had them be our, my property manager and they found somebody. And then I just went 100% living off the company dime. Uh, living in the, the hotels or wherever we worked. And I did that for several years. And in that time, I mean, I was able to save maybe 50 to 100 grand of my paycheck every year to put two more rentals. That's, that's super smart. And I think circumstances back then were a lot different to now when people are more stuck at home rather than anything because of the pandemic. But if you had to kind of relive that, what advice would you give to some people that are in a similar situation where they're looking to get into their first or second deal? They don't quite know what to do or how to do it. Um, is there some tips or tricks that you can share regarding that? Yeah, I mean, so a couple of things. I mean, I made a lot of mistakes back then of like paying down my mortgage. That's not what sophisticated investors do. The, the, the debt is probably the most valuable part of the whole thing, locking in good 30-year mortgage. So I would, you know, take $5,000 here, $15,000 here to pay down my mortgage back then. I'm sure that kind of slowed the, pro- the process. So yeah, don't do that. <laughs> And, you know, like the first properties I bought were in Seattle 
And what I've learned is a lot of sophisticated cash flow investors do not buy in primary markets like California, Seattle, Hawaii, New York. They buy in these more secondary and tertiary markets like Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis, Kansas City, Memphis, Little Rock, like Jacksonville, like kind of second tier cities that you don't normally think of, but where the rent to value ratios are higher than 1%. So they're able to cash flow. Yeah, I think that's the key, right? When you start looking at deals and numbers, uh, making sure that a property cash flows is critical because you do not want to be putting your own money into a property every single month, right? Yeah, but this is very current too. I think most people invest for appreciation. Um, well, especially in those big cities, right? If you look at where I am here in California, there's it's pretty much all for land value and appreciation rather than positive cash flow. And you're lucky if you're breaking even really a lot of the time. Right. I mean, a lot of times you're bleeding cash on a monthly basis, but granted, yeah, you know, properties typically appreciate, but it's the cash flow that allows you to go and buy more and more properties to scale your portfolio. And that's so it's just key. yeah, two so, different, two different thought processes there. But I mean, I, I've kind of walked down the cash flow path and I believe it's more prudent way of doing things. I think so too, unless you have a huge bucket of money and cash flow isn't a problem, then Go ahead, by all means, but I agree with you on that one. Can you talk a little bit about scaling? So now you mentioned you have uh, several thousand properties that you're a part owner of. Um, can you share about how that journey went and over what period of time you went from owning just that one to, to where you are today? Yeah, so from 2009 to 2015, I was just you know saving a boatload of my paycheck, buying more rentals, accumulating in 2015, I had 11 rentals, and that's kind of when I bought my last single-family home rental. Um, at that time, I realized that I was having an eviction or two every year and some kind of big issue that happened every quarter, like a tree falling on the house or the pipes freezing. Um, not a big deal, right? Because you know, I buy properties at cash flow that can pay the property management 10%. And, um, you know, people want to kind of go to my website, down my analyzer. You can kind of get a feel of how the numbers work. Um, you can also like, you start to realize that with 10 properties, 11 properties, I was having maybe a few hundred bucks of cash flow per property, maybe $3,000 per month, which isn't bad. Not, not complaining over that, but I don't know what American family can survive off $3,000 a month. So you need 10 grand, 10 grand is what normally people talk about as sort of that, that water level that you want to get above. So now you're talking 30 rentals. So it's three times all that, that number, that junk, right? So now eviction or two every other month, some kind of big issue every other week. It's just not scalable. And this is about the time when I started to join different mastermind groups, getting other around other high paid doctors, lawyers, engineers that were maybe 10, 20 years further along on the path. And I think this is where like we kind of both aligned in like the, these strategies that the wealthy are doing is very different. I mean, though you could do a lot of stuff with the legal side and the tax side. Um, but as far as investments goes, a lot of these guys were investing in private placements and syndications where they could diversify over many different asset classes like multifamily, self-storage, home parks, uh, living, different partners, different geographic areas, and they don't do anything. And they don't put any loans in their name. Today, as a general partner today, I put the loans in my name on behalf of everybody else and also very little to no liability as an LP passive non-managing member um, of, of the venture. Yeah, that, that, you said a lot of a lot of really valuable things there. 
So firstly, a lot of investors or credit investors, depending on which level that you're at, they, they do not want to be active in the deals. They want to just sit back and let smart people like Lynn find the deals, run the deals, and then find management teams to kind of make that money work for you. And they mastermind with themselves, right? There's whole groups of people that look at these deals and everyone has a different appetite, a uh, different level of confidence and in what markets they want to go into, whether that's, like you said, uh, mobile homes, self-storage, multifamily, single family. You know, there's millions of different, well, maybe thousands of different asset types out there. So it's about finding what your uh, comfort level is, firstly, what types of returns that you're looking for versus your aggressiveness in the market, because you could do a value add flip, which is a lot more risky having to add value and then release out a property as compared to a passive cash flow investment that's 80 or 90% rented out. And you know that the money's guaranteed from day one. So I think everyone has a different tolerance level uh, I like your, your kind of uh, approach where you go into the secondary or tertiary cities. Uh, I do something similar where we look at the fastest growing cities, not necessarily the biggest, but the fastest growing over by using the, the Milken report. I think that's really valuable to see where the trends are, but ultimately going to um, populate places where people are moving rather moving to rather than moving away from um, what are some of the other things that you look for in a good deal for, for you and your investors, Lynn? First of all, it's got a cash flow day one. So, I mean, there's a lot of good markets like Boise or Austin, but they just don't cash flow. Um, that's just part of our criteria. Like we want to go into stabilized assets, 90% occupied or more, so that we can get that Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, non-recourse debt. Right? That's a condition of that loan. And we want to be cash flowing. Day one, I want to see clean financials for the past year or two years to see, yeah, how much money are they making? We want to buy a currently working business. And then the next element that needs to happen is there needs to be some value add opportunities, such as, you know, for us to come in, maybe do a little bit of a facelift, new flooring, new appliances, new, um, maybe new paint job, and not really get into huge CapEx. Maybe we normally target four to six thousand dollars budget per interior unit um, to upgrade. So not very much. But when you get it done on a large scale, 200, 300 units, you can get a lot of economies of scale and get a lot of bank for your buck. But our goal there is to bump the rents up an additional hundred bucks or maybe even more. But you know, commercial assets is based on the net operating income. And when you increase the net operating income, that's how you make money. You increase Absolutely. the value. So for the people who didn't quite understand that, for every dollar extra that you make at an operating level, it's a multiple of that when you come to exit that. So can you just explain that a little bit more to people who don't quite get that, Lynn? Yeah, so so the way um, apartments are, a lot of businesses are sort of on this same thing. Like Instead of a beta, we talk about net operating income. So if I'm able to increase the net operating income or lower expenses, which kind of feeds into the NOI, I'm, I'm divided by the, the cap rate, which think of it as kind of the multiplier, right, for that prevailing asset class or that market. And that's how much value I created. So, you know, just simple example here, you know, we had a hundred unit property that was um, under market rents by 150 bucks and we were turning five units a month. You know, we, we, we move slow, right? This is a, this is a, a slow flip. 
business plan. So what we normally do. So if we increase, I'm just doing a little bit of math here, 150 bucks per unit times five a month. So that's $750 of increased NOI. Uh, multiply that by 12. Now we created $9,000 of CapEx per, of, of extra NOI per year. Divide that by 0 0.05, a five cap. We just created $180,000 of value every single month just by changing five units, putting a little bit of you know, work into it. And that's force appreciation right there. Right. So that's there's a lot of great things going on here. And I think just to summarize that is that you can leverage the power of the numbers here by value adding small but consistently along the way. When you extrapolate that into the big picture and look to then exit it, you've uh, you've increased the value of that overall asset by hundreds of thousands at that point. Right. It's just no different than like I think people understand like house flips. Right. You yeah. got a you got a crappy house. You fix it up. You put a whole boatload of money into it, and yeah, you maybe you double the price of the house. But in this case, we're not doing too much to it, but we're getting so much more bang for our buck, and we're increasing that property by one hundred eighty thousand every month yeah. by doing changing out five units with just a mere under five thousand dollars of rehab per unit. It's a very very efficient way to do it, and like you said in the earlier example, that if you're running. 10, 15 single family homes, you've got 10, 15 different headaches, whereas this is one headache all in one location. And it's a lot more manageable because at this point, you usually have a dedicated team on site that's dealing with all of those headaches. So it's not as if it's your phone that's going to be ringing every time there's a problem and you can subcontract that out to a management team. Right. Our, our role as the asset manager, we have on-site property management, which you can typically get once you get over 60 units at a site. That usually justifies the salary of a person to sit in the office. But what you really need is that person driving around in the golf cart. You don't get that until you have 100 units or more. And that's the key person that you're really going to see a lot of cost savings because instead of paying a third-party plumber to come out and fix the toilet you know, for four hours at 600 bucks for that site visit, you, you have the guy running around in your golf cart fix that before his first smoke break on salary. And, and that's kind of the next level, right? Is that you get in, a lot of people's journey tends to be single family, multifamily, larger multifamily, and then you get to that tipping point where it's now run by a management team or a team of uh, maintenance crews. And as you kind of go up that scale, you get less and less involved. So I think that that was a key part of your story that really stood out for me was how you transitioned from initially owning the first one yourself and then renting it out, but you're smart enough to get uh, a landlord and an agent in to do that heavy lifting for you while you were at work and then continued that efficiency on uh, throughout your career. So now you're, you have, you're part of a group that... Uh, that syndicates deals. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so we kind of use our, our relationships with brokers to kind of source good deals. And then we kind of bring in investors from my investor club into these opportunities. And, you know, it's not like a fund or anything like that. It's a, it's a pick your own adventure. Pick, pick this deal, pick that deal. So they're single asset LLC structured deals where it's essentially, um, you know, passive investors come in as LPs, they invest, they jump on the airplane, we fly the airplane for them. 
Perfect. It makes it really simple for those people that are just wanting to get into uh, real estate and don't necessarily know all the ins and outs. It's a good way to partner up and kind of get an inside track before like, and not even that, you can just stay on that inside track and let someone else do the heavy lifting for you that's got the track record there. And you do some really cool stuff with uh, cost segregations and bonus depreciations. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and how that works? Yeah, so I think what this world opens up is, you know, it's good deals that are be- a lot better than average returns, but it also kicks off so much passive activity losses because we do a cost segregation on the asset. A lot of times extract out a third of the property value as losses in the first year. So this gives a huge loss to passive investors, which they can in turn possibly create a real estate professional status strategy on their taxes to offset their high ordinary income. But if not, definitely whack out all the passive income that they're making from these deals. So this is kind of what, you know, like, the deals and syndication deals is how I found this stuff. And I think how most people get into the situation, but now this is just a third of the big picture, right? It allows you to pay taxes, play different games with your taxes, choose how much taxes you want to pay essentially. And then it kind of opens up. Now you have more money to invest, creating that harmonious cycle, but then now open up other strategies like your infinite banking or kind of the stuff you play around with, right? Like the, the nonprofit type of stuff, um, yeah. paying little to no taxes there. Yeah, so there's, there's lots of different things you can do on your taxes. So if you're not a high net worth individual or business owner that qualifies to work with a company like mine, there's, there's different things out there for you. There's, like we mentioned here, bonus depreciation or cost segregations. There's, there's a whole list of them, especially in real estate, where even you can defer and do 1031s. Uh, so there's lots of other tools out there for people that want to mitigate and kind of pay their fair share of taxes is how the IRS frames it. And you determine what your fair share is, not the IRS. So it just depends on how much research you do and what is the best fit for your individual circumstance. So um, that all makes a lot of sense. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about how you see real estate moving forward over the next year to two years with, uh, with the aftermath of COVID and everything, Len? Well, I mean, through COVID, I mean, we weren't really impacted very much. I mean, across the portfolio of 4,000 so units, normally we collect 97% of the rents. You're always going to have a few deadbeats out of 100, that's for sure. But through the worst of COVID, maybe it dropped down to the mid-90s on average. And so a lot of these... Really these, strong then. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these deals, I mean, we're still cash flowing. We're still in the black if we stay above 50 60%. So, I mean, I think that just outlines, like, how robust multifamily investing, especially in workforce sector, right? Like rent 700 bucks to $1,200 for the average American. So, I mean, cap rates didn't change at all during COVID. Um, And now I think we're in this like kind of pause period where, I mean, I I don't, I don't have a crystal ball, but a lot of like the data out there or a lot of the, the big brokerages and the big, big financial houses they're predicting big things for Q2, Q3 uh, GDP growth. Whether it happens or not, I mean, at least we have a baseline, right? We know what happens within a pandemic and it stays the same. Mm-hmm. To me, there's, I mean, the roof's gonna get blown off of this stuff where 
potentially, I mean, might get too overheated, right? I, I think that's the thing, right? Like if you sit and wait, you might miss out on one of the best bull markets you ever saw. So you still think it's going to go up and up and up? Yeah. I mean, if not, we, I mean, again, our business plan is buy stuff that cash flows. And that's the key. I think I really like that side of it where, like you said, some of the numbers there, you need 60 or 70% to make sure you're in the black. That's a lot of leeway. Most, most deals that I look at, at least, which I'm looking at on daily basis, they're, they're not that good, right? It's like if you drop below that 80% mark, you're in trouble. So to, be, to have that extra level of cushion at 60 to 70, it gives uh, the investors a lot of peace of mind as well, I think. Yeah. I mean, we're not here to, you know, exponentially grow our money, right? We're here more for capital preservation, but I mean, we just exited three deals where we doubled investors money in three years. To me, that's pretty good. Yeah. And especially if you can do that repetitively, like you've shown in your past record as well, I think that's kind of really important as well. Cause when you're bringing in new investors that want to do bigger deals and then your portfolio starts doubling and tripling every year or two, then that makes it even more important. But uh, I think we could talk real estate all day long. Lane, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, they can uh, check out my Follow My Journey podcast, Simple Passive Cashflow. And in the beginning, I was buying turnkey rentals. um, But as I became more of an accredited investor, um, lately, the topic materials have kind of switched to syndications, private placements, this type of stuff. Um, But uh, email address lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. Check out the website. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. And we'll put the links below so that everyone can reach out to you quickly and drive some traffic to that website as well. I'd like to end with one question, Lane. And that is, if you had to put your success down to three factors and apportion it across these three factors, how would you split it between drive, skill, and luck? I think not everybody has skills that are unique that get rewarded in this world. And that's why there are jobs. So if you have a job, that's nothing to say that anything bad about you. But I think, you know, if you have some skills, you have to put some drive behind it and then you have to get lucky, right? Not everybody is meant to be eight figures and above, but I think everybody, if you have drive and you can execute, you can, without much luck, you can still get to easily, you know, seven figures, mid, mid to low seven figures. So the fact that if you're not there yet, that's just a lack of drive. Okay, cool. It's interesting. I, I like to get that inside look into people's minds on how they rank that. So I always find that fascinating. Lane, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate all the value that you've uh, given and impact that you've made. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me.